But now, now thanks be unto God who always causes us to triumph in Christ and makes manifest the Savior of his knowledge by us in every place. For we are unto God a sweet Savior of Christ. In them that are saved and them that, are, that perish. And I trust that as we look into the life of Christ and try to build this continued story together that we see who we are in him. Do we really know who we are? that we have this privilege. What he desired so much for the children of Israel, and we know they failed. But he says, I will betroth you to me forever. My covenant will be an everlasting covenant. And it's so with us. I think that covenant is a covenant that Jesus made with us. The will in the last testament is, is an everlasting covenant that'll stand forever. And do we desire to be this sweet savor? What a joy. What a joy to be this sweet savor. We are worthy because of him, not because of our flesh, but because of him who created us in his very own image, in his very own image. So as we enjoy the journey here, and you know, we're not saved to go to heaven. We're saved to bring the kingdom of heaven here. So what is it? Is the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God two different things, or is it just one? What do you think? One? Okay. One person says one. It's just one? It, you know, the kingdom of heaven can be Translated as present, the kingdom of God can be future. I think it's the same, and the reason is this. In the Jewish world, they don't say God. If you ever see anything written, it's G-D, because it's too sacred a name to say. So they would give it other names. I think one strong clue we have is when the prodigal comes home. Uh, I should recommend that book to you, the the prodigal, and maybe I'll have it tonight. I'll try to put it on my list for you tonight. But when the prodigal comes home, what does he say to his dad? I'm not worthy, for I have sinned against heaven and against thee. It's the same as saying I've sinned against God, but they don't use that terminology in the religious Jewish world, not even today. So I, now, I think it's, I think it's tense. I think it's now. But there's also places where it talks about the kingdom of heaven in the future. Don't get me wrong there. We, we can't just bring everything here, I don't think, because he talks about the future. And we look into the future as well. So I think it's one. I know Michael Pearl is a strong believer that it's two. And I disagree with it. Because I think it's, it's again, a Western view and not bringing both of them together. To bring both of them together helps us understand. When you talk about a priest, what was his duty? What was his job? What was he to do? Okay, so He was to burn, do the sacrifices, incense. So he was a caretaker, caretaker of the tabernacle. That's, that was the priestly line, line from Aaron. The Levites were to take care of the priest. What else could he, what was he actually doing when he was doing that? He was a mediator, very good. What else? Praise, in doing all of that, he was putting God on display. In a sense. So, let's bring it over into the New Testament. What does it say about us believers? We are kings and priests. 
Hmm. Are we putting God on display by our walk, by our talk, by our actions? Even our body language talk tells us who we are so many times, how we respond or how we react. So we are to put God on displays. We are on display. We are kings and priests, it says. The privilege we have today, not just the, the elect few. No, it's not just the preachers. We're all preachers. Some just speak more than others. We're all to put God on display. And we all have the same privilege. We're all called. We're called in different ways because we have different gifts and different callings. One is not less than the other. I always say at work, it's not less to clean the latrine than it is to build the, do the last thing on the trailer that we build. Nobody's less. Everybody is on the same level in the kingdom of heaven. It's how we choose to live it out that makes the difference. So we're kings and priests putting on display. What was the other one I asked? I had three questions. What was the other one? I forgot. When does the finger of God show oh, up? yes. When does the finger of God show up again? Or does it show up again? Anybody find it? Did you find it? Okay. Does it show up again? Does the finger of God show up again? Did Jesus use it? Did Jesus use it? Yes, Jesus used it. Does anybody have an idea where he could have used that? Oh, it's a good thought. I didn't, didn't think about that one. But he used his finger to write on the ground, which would be what he did. He used his finger, it says, to write the Ten Commandments. That's good. What I'm thinking about is in Luke 11, verse 20. But if I, with the finger of God, cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God has come upon you. I think that taps right back to Egypt because the, the kingdom of God or the presence of God was showing up. And Jesus, and to me, when, when, and now we have to ask ourselves, why do I need to know that? Why is that in there? That's what makes you go back and look. Where would that show up again in the Old Testament? And now you tie it together and it just makes it so much more powerful because the kingdom of heaven is shown up. So when God comes into your life, which is his finger writing on your heart, the kingdom of God shows up. And what the DNA, I call it, that's inside of you comes alive. It's the presence of God in you. It's what he put in each individual when you were born. Everyone has it because you were created by God. You're not a, a mistake. You're a special person that was created by God. And when that becomes alive, it's like an explosion 
Now the kingdom has become enlarged. Another saint, another soul has come to find God. I like that picture. Okay, let's go into the life of Christ, and we'll take about a half hour or so here and see what we can come up with here and look at discipleship a little bit and how he was, uh, in the strategic time of Jesus when he was here, what was going on a little bit. There is tons of stuff that happened in the time of Jesus, and we often, we, unless you just, if you don't read a lot of history, you, you won't, it just won't pop out to you as easy. But when you read history and all the things that's going on, and we'll see how Jesus and the suppression of us going on. But before I go there, I'd just like to use this tree analogy to challenge us a little bit. This is a tree. It's called an aurora tree. Say aurora. Aurora, aurora tree is a tree that, work, that usually grows out in the desert, way out in the desert. Its roots will go down, they claim, down to 300 feet to find moisture. It finds moisture out there, and it has a fruit on it's like almost like a grapefruit-sized fruit. You can see that fruit there that grows on this aurora tree. And so you can imagine you're out in the desert and you run out of water. That's the worst thing you ever can do is being in the desert without water because you will die soon if you don't have water. And man can't live without water. That's the most important. They say the three most important things in Israel is water. You would never build a city where there was no water. They always, when you see tells and cities in Israel, they're built on a mount. There must have been water there. And you see all kinds of shafts and how they brought them inside. And, and yeah, you, just, you need to go with us to Israel to see all these things. Anyway, you, you come to this fruit, and you're in the desert. You run out of water. And you ask your guide, can I pick this fruit? And the man says, sure, go ahead and pick it. And so you pick the fruit. And when you, when you pick that fruit, it's really, it feels like it's just loaded with, with moisture inside. And with sure, you're surely going to survive by having this fruit and so you open up the fruit and when you open it up it goes poof and it's full of air and the seeds that are inside are deadly if you'd get it in an open wound it could kill you they say they actually use them they put it they used to use them to put it on arrows when they shoot hyenas and if it enters that hyena it will kill the hyena because it'll poison it that's how poisonous it is it looks beautiful looks like a beautiful tree and the analogy I want to take is that is often how we are. We look so good on the outside. We can dress up and we can just be these pious-looking people, but inside we're just not what we're, what we're outside. So be real. Just be who you are. It's okay. God loves you the same. He doesn't look down on you when you expose really who you are. He probably might, he might shed some tears if you're trying to hide who you really are. Because it will open some, sooner or later, somebody will try to open you and they will find that there is not, maybe not in there what they thought was there. So don't be an aurora tree. Looks so good. But really, there's nothing in it but deadly poison. And many people walk around that way, I think. They look right and everything looks good. But when you try to enter into the hearts of those people, they have no, no idea who they are. Or they're full of venom and hate and all that that goes on. And we have the privilege to show them true love because Jesus, who is our Savior. Quickly, we'll go through some of these verses 
as we go into the life of Jesus. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, the house of Joseph a flame, the house of Esau for stubble, and they shall kindle in them and devour them, and there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken it. Did this really happen? We'll see. Who is king? Who is king in your life? Is it Jesus? Or who is it? Let's see who was king in the time of Jesus. And let's see what Jesus was confronted with. And we know the story of Herod, Herod the Great. Herod the Great was an amazing builder. And we'll look at some of that quickly. We'll go through some of these pictures and I'll talk a little bit about him. I won't expand a lot on Herod today because of time, but think about it. And then go into Josephus and write, read the book of Josephus about Herod and the atrocities that he did. It was just unbelievable how Herod lived. But that was, he was the Herod the Great before Jesus' time. The Herod the Great was the one that killed the babies. And sometimes it can be confusing about all these Herods. And I'll try to explain as we go into the life of Jesus so you can get these Herods straight. And we know these, these verses that I just popped up a few of these verses here and how the wise men came and Herod struggled with it because another king is born when you're king and somebody comes around and says there's a king born. You can imagine what kind of trembling that would put into the king, especially the king like Herod, a ruthless man, a man that killed thousands of people, a man that would, it, it didn't care who it, it was just full of, it was a mess of Herod. But he was also a puppet of Rome and he was a powerful man and he could win almost every war. That's why he got to be the king of Israel at the time of the Roman when the Romans were conquering. And so anyway, Herod was challenged with all of this. Herod the Great. We'll, we'll venture through some of that and I'll just give you a short overview. This is what Jesus was confronted with when he was born. Now Herod the Great died about four years after Jesus was born. When Jesus was in Egypt, four to six years after Jesus was born, Herod was in Egypt. Let's look at some of his building projects. Everybody's probably heard of Masada. You heard of Masada? The great fortress type structure out in the middle of the, the desert. It's amazing. Well, you look at the backside of Masada here. This is, this is the ramp that the Romans built. But Herod had built an aqueduct down here or a, uh, a dam. He had dammed up this wadi. When I talk about wadi, I'm talking about ravine. Wadi is the Hebrew name or the Arabic name, I think, for, for, for ravine. So I, it easily, it just, I'm used to saying wadi, but I'm, maybe I confused you. But wadi is, he, he had dammed up this ravine here, and he had caught the water, and he had built aqueducts along the side. You can see some of these holes. An aqueduct is a water trough that would catch the wadi flood that would come down, catch the water, and it would take it into these, to these uh, there you can see them a little better, take them into these cisterns. I'm not sure, I think he had maybe seven cisterns along there. There were about 300,000 gallons apiece. And I'll take you inside of one here in a little bit. But then the Romans came along in 73 AD and built this ramp because of the zealot, uh, Jewish zealots that were on top, and we'll cross that a little later. As he built this still, so you can still, we still walk up the ramp. And it's an unbelievable hike just to go up and to see all of this and to know that what was going on. But Herod had built this place up first. There you can see the ramp closer. And we'll go there. You can see along the side of the mountain where they got all these holes where the cisterns are at. And this is inside the cistern. It's a little hard to see. It's dark. The ceiling is up here. Here's the ceiling. Here you can see steps going down into the cistern. This black mark here is where the top of the water used to be at some time. It's filled up to there. We know that because from here up, from here to here is where the ceiling then starts here. 
but this is where the stairway would go down, and they would go down to, to bring water out. And that's how most wells and cisterns are. They're not buckets being left down. There's some of that. But there's also, a lot of times they have cisterns and they got steps going down. You gotta go down into the cistern to bring up your water. So imagine, Herod the Great, this is on top. Imagine being those cisterns filled with water. How are you gonna get it on top? Well, today we'll just start the motor and we'll start the pump and we'll pump it up. Well, this is a cistern on top. They, they tell me that they used to use buckets to get the water on top. And Herod had about 400,000 workers at one time, all mainly Jewish workers. So they would probably carry the water, have like an assembly line carrying water up, they think, they're not sure. But I, I tried to imagine how it would be to dump the first bucket of water in a cistern that holds 500,000 gallons of water. But they did it somehow. Herod had enough things on top of Masada. Here's his storehouses that they found when they, when they got their state back. They started unearthing this in 48, and they still found figs, they found wheat. I'm not sure what else, maybe pomegranates. I'm not sure what all they found that were sealed in jars yet. And they were good, the figs they could eat, the wheat they planted and it grew. So that's 2,000 years later. But this was Herod. He had enough storage on top of there for 10,000 soldiers or 20,000 soldiers for 10 years that he could store enough food up there. So Herod had these seven fortresses strung out from north to south. He had another one across the, from east to west, north to south, east to west, across the, the Jordan River on the other side of Perea. He had another fortress he had. And his huge, the biggest fortress, this one was 22 acres here in Masada, 22 acres on top of a mountain that stood in by, all by itself. And let's look at what he put up there. Just this Herod, this great builder. This was a sauna on top of Masada. It's a steam bath. The pillars, there was a slotted floor on top of those pillars, and he would heat the water, and he would have his own steam bath. Here he had these fresco walls, painted walls with like a plaster, this was on top of Masada. This was not in Jerusalem or in a big city. This was out in the middle of nowhere. And he had Olympic-sized swimming pool on top of Masada. It's just mind-boggling to think about all he did. Here you find mosaic floors. These floors were the Jewish, Jewish were, uh, people were carpenters, good carpenters. Even Jesus, Joseph's dad, was a carpenter. Now they don't know. Some, there's history that says he made yo oxen yoke that were very popular. And he had a great name for building yoke of, or oxen yoke, but we don't know, was he that or was he a mason? He could have been in Jesus' time, and, and the, the terminology can be carpenter or tecton. Tecton is a mason. But these little blocks of marble or stone were different colors, half-inch square stones, and that's how they built these. They would say a section like this would probably take one person a whole year to build or more. So it was, it was unbelievable how he built. And this is the fortress on the, on the north side that they, it's an artist's rendering, which they think Miriam, his, one of his ten wives, was buried here. They think, they're not sure. But this is how it was, hanging kind of on the side of Masada on the north side. Just, just amazing. Here you're looking down from Masada, and you can see here was a Roman camp from, from 73 AD. You can still see part of the wall. They had a wall to go all the way around Masada. The Romans did. Now I'm, I'm switching gears here from Herod to the Romans. They had built this wall around because there was about 700 or so, seven to 900 people on top of Masada, the zealots that they thought they had conquered before but were still there. So they built this wall all the way around Masada, about eight feet wide and 12 feet tall. Romans did that. Just to give you a little idea of what was going on, the tension that was going on between the Jews and the Romans, and this was after Jesus. Again, looking down from Masada from the front, there's the Dead Sea, 
Dead Sea used to be all the way up here when I was there in 2000. The Dead Sea was about here. Now it's, it's, it's declining every year. They're trying to figure out how to keep the Dead Sea alive because the Dead Sea has a 35, or 33 to 35% salt content where the ocean has about a 5%. So the minerals in the Dead Sea is, it's, it's rich, rich stuff. They're taking minerals out of there all the time, but it doesn't, it just keeps, so how does it, it's amazing. It's 1,200 feet below sea level. It's the lowest place on the face of the earth. An amazing place. Again, now we're looking up the trail in the front. So imagine going up there every day to take wares or to go up and to build Masada. I don't know if they did not. I'm sure they stayed up there sometime. But this is the trail they think is the ancient trail that goes all the way. It's a mile and a half long or something like that. It's, a, it's a, an amazing trail to hike and to come down, to try to come down. But that's one of Herod's building projects. Let's go on. Caesarea along the coast. He built this place called Caesarea, and it was like the glistening of the sun. Or the morning, it was like the rising of the sun. It was overlaid with beautiful marble. He built this huge harbor. I'm not sure how many acres it was. It was, it was bigger than Caesar's harbor in Rome. All of per Herod's palaces were bigger than Caesar's palace. I think Caesar's palace was three acres. Herod's like I said, the, the biggest one, which was uh, the Herodian, 42 acres, and the smallest one was seven acres, Herod. So he was this puppet that Rome used to crush the people of Israel. And anyway, there's a theater, which is in every pagan city, every Herod city had this theater. They reconstructed it. It's original. Some of this is still original down here. And then it seats maybe 25,000 people. That was in Herod's time. This is the marble pillars that were in Herod's palaces there, where actually Paul was here at Caesarea. When they took Paul up to Caesarea, it would have been here somewhere in one of Herod's palaces where he stayed. He had like eight different or nine different kinds of marble, I'm not quite sure, and it was trucked in all the way from 1,100 miles away to, from Italy to bring in here or, or boat it in here so that they could make these pillars and raise up this beautiful, beautiful city. Finally, the, the Jews eventually got tired of them and they crushed the city because they were just tired of the Rome, uh, of the Jews. But this was Herod. This is the amphitheater, a stadium. It's at least a half mile long. It's unbelievable. It's, I, they think it's a mile track on there. They had Olympics were done in Herod's time. It was not different than today. And Herod was a great builder, and he was a great athlete. He was an amazing person, but he was an evil man. But God used him, still used him. This is an aqueduct that comes from close to the Mount Carmel, about seven miles away if I'm correct, with about 14,000 arches. I'm not, don't take me that for sure. But this aqueduct is still standing 2,000 years later. And he brought fresh water into Caesarea when he built the city from about seven miles away. It's, just, it's unbelievable what he did. And you can still see it today. Jerusalem. He had built the new temple in Jerusalem. And this is the artist rendering of it, or the, not the artist rendering, but the the uh, city of Jerusalem in the model, the model city of Jerusalem, it was a beautiful, beautiful temple. They say this was about 75 feet tall. The curtain weighed, it took 300 priests to hang the curtain on the inside of the temple. That's a Jewish, I don't know that it's true or not, but it was a huge thick curtain. That's the curtain that would have tore in Jesus' time when Jesus died on the cross. But it was overlaid with gold again. It was beautiful. And we know when the Romans came in in 70 AD, they, somebody threw a torch in there and it started burning and the gold started dripping and the Roman soldiers went crazy and they weren't supposed to burn the city but it happened they burned the city. This is one stone. It's not, let me see, I think I have another, no, let me go back. This stone here, we measured is 49 feet 6 inches long. 
It's 10 and a half feet high, and they had drilled through it, and I think the deepest place of it was about 10 and a half feet deep. Uh, 350 to 600 ton, metric ton of stone, one stone. And it's not the bottom stone. It's not the top stone either. How did they get it there? How did they do all of this? These stone wall hewn, kind of like Solomon's temple. There was no hammer found inside. I don't know if there was a hammer here or not. There's no mortar between these stones. They're all laid on top of each other. Well, the Romans pushed a bunch of them down till it was a rubble. This one they didn't push over. This was underneath the rubble yet that they found. Herod stones all are embossed along the edges. They have like a half inch offset, about three inches wide along the edge. It depends on the size of the stone. But whenever you go to Israel, you'll find a stone that has an offset on the end, like an embossed edge. You'll know it's a Herod stone. That's how Herod built everything that he built. And it's his trademark. This is the wall. This is the western wall underneath the tunnels that you can go into in Jerusalem when you go into Jerusalem and the, and the tunnels and the western wall. He had a tremendous, beautiful palace in Jericho, and things happened here as well. He drowned one of his sons here that was supposed to be his successor. And because jealousy arose and there was a, something going on that stories were going on, he drowned him. Another one he burned here. He, he built a cage and put him in the cage, and as they were eating, he would drop him down one one notch lower, one notch lower, and by the time they were done eating, he had burned up his son. Can you imagine? That's how he killed Sarah, uh, killed Miriam, his favorite wife. He thought somebody had an affair with her, so he put her in a noose, and as they started the course eating, he would tighten up the noose, and by the time they were done eating, he had hung her. Just a ruthless man to get rid of people. At the end of his life when he was dying, his, one of his soldiers come in and says, well, if nobody warns for you, I will. So it angered him, and he said, I'm going to see that the whole nation mourns when I die. So he went and captured 500 of the prominent Jewish people, put them in the Colosseum and said, when I die, kill them. Well, when he had gone into a coma, they thought he had died. They, they, his two sons stopped it, and he didn't, they didn't allow it to happen. He had come back, and I'm not sure what happened. I think he killed those two sons then, and then he died. But they didn't kill those Jewish people. But that was Herod. He was a Saddam. He was a Hitler. He was, he was a ruthless, ungodly man. And God brought him in for this climax. And we'll see who Herod is. There in the distance, you'll see this cone-shaped mountain. It's called the Herodian. The Herodium was built. It's the highest mountain in Judea. And it's built by Jewish people we, because he had, had Jewish people working for him. It starts about right here. This was where the hill was. Now it's there. It's about 900 feet tall total. And on top of that hill... Because here you can see the coal complex. This is the complex that's 42 acres. It was his favorite place of being and to go to. And on top of that, he built this triclinium type uh, or this round type structure. And this is the artist rendering of it here that he had built on top of it. The silo is another three stories out of the ground. This was maybe two stories out. This is another three stories higher out of the ground. It's close to Bethlehem. So look at the setting. Look at the setting that God set up for his son to be born. Herod, the most powerful ruler that ever ruled Israel outside of Solomon possibly. But this was a ruthless ruler. And we know what happens when a ruler rules that is wicked. The people mourn. And they were under tremendous suppression by the, the, the uh, Roman people. Under tremendous suppression. They hated the Romans. And Jesus comes along. So you can imagine this place all lit up. And around this place, there were fields called shepherd fields. 
So imagine the story that night as this beautiful place was there. This is maybe the picture of what Bethlehem would have been in Jesus' time. Just a few hundred, maybe a few hundred people at the most, they say would be in Bethlehem in Jesus' time. It's right below the Herodian. And it, it's, a, it's a nice, it, it seems like right setting. But then the proclamation comes. The proclamation comes, there's a king born. And who does he come to? Not to the king of Israel. Not to the elite in Israel. But he comes to the shepherds. The shepherds that were out in the field watching their flock by night. Now when it's out in the field, watching their flock by night, it has to be in the fall. Because only in the fall do they go in the fields else they're out on the mountainside. But after the fall harvest, which is September, October, they're out in the fields. So Jesus, to me, was born sometime September and October. January 20, uh, December 25th is, is a made-up, it's a Christian made-up holiday. It's Christmas, but it's not Christmas, at least not when Jesus was born. Absolutely not. Can't be. Hanukkah is that time. Hanukkah, which is a Jewish festival, which is an amazing festival, that is at that time, but not Christmas when Jesus was born. And I get pretty adamant about that, but I'm not going to make an apology for it. We have, again, been indoctrinated by our Socrates, Aristotle, Plato, Alexander the Great, Constantine, Augustine. Now, I'm not saying they're all wrong, but when the conflict started between the Jewish and the Christians started happening, they pulled away and they, they really tried to separate themselves completely from them instead of trying to win them. And so these things come up. So Jesus is born. He comes to the shepherds. The shepherds go to find out. Sure enough, they find him wrapped in a manger, laying in a manger wrapped in swaddling clothes, which means they were very poor people. This, it's, a, it's a cave, possibly a cave, or this can be under a house. It's not a barn with a bunch of cows in it and a nice straw in it. It's not that at all. We, we can't find that. When you go into history, you can't really find that at all. You find this sheepfold. That's what it is. With a thousand sheep fires in there. That's, this is a natural sheepfold where they take their sheep in and guard for their sheep to be there at night. It was possibly a place like this. It could have been under a house as well. Very likely it could have been under a house because he found no room in the inn Inn meaning at his relative's house. It's not a hotel or a motel, an inn. In that day, it was at your relative's house, and so all the relatives were coming there to be taxed. It was simply full. But we have room in the stable for you, which was probably under the house. Isn't that amazing how God just brings his, his son to be born in, in a bakery, in Bakeryville, better bread of life, in the town of bread called Bethlehem, in a stable just like he had promised he would so that we wouldn't miss him, or so that they wouldn't miss him, and they still missed him. But the, the, the trial is this. Excuse me, let me go back. Who's king? Here you have the Herodian, and it's all lit up, and we know that if you talk against this man, you're going to die, because he's king. Now here comes this amazing story. The angel shows up, he makes the proclamation, and then a host of angels show up, Glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Today, something has happened like never before. God's promise has been made true today. God's fulfillment is coming. Are you ready? And the shepherds were. They went in and they found him and they worshipped him. And then the wise men come and they give him these gifts. And, and it's amazing. These wise men, they came from the east. Who were they? We don't have time to go there. It's amazing. Search it out, who they were. A manger. This is a manger. You find them all over. 
That's, that's the manger that I would think a type of manger that Jesus laid in. It's a stone manger. It's the size of a little cradle for a baby. It's perfect size for a baby. But that's where they would also feed the animals in, in a manger. So let's go to Israel real quick again. We talked about this the other night. There's where Abraham originated from. God plants him in the middle of everything. This is the main highway, I-80 or I-76 or I-99. goes right through here. That's where God planted his people. And if you go to the early church, you need to look at that sometime. Look at the early church. Maybe we'll get there tonight. I doubt it a little bit we will. But if you go to the early church, God planted all those churches on the main highways, on 37,000 mile highway that the Romans had laid. God started planting these churches on very strategic places. And to go there is absolutely phenomenal to see those seven churches. And I'd love to talk more about them. It's, it's as fascinating and as powerful as it is talking about the Old Testament and then in the, into the New. Here is the Via Maris coming down through. Matthew chapter 4, it says the way of the sea. And something happened here, the way of the sea. The great light was brought in because there was great darkness there. And this light was brought in that, that the darkness would be taken away and the light would come in. But this is the main route, the way of the sea. And we have three cities here called Gezer, Megiddo, and Hazor. Those three cities, in ancient times, if you could, if you could fortify those three cities, you control the whole world. Because now you could gather the taxes. And we have to remember, over here was also a highway. It's called the King's Highway, but it's a much more harder highway to cross. And this one was through the Shephelah, the low-lying area, down into Egypt. So people would come through here. And Herod knew that as well. So what did Herod do? What I told you that Caesarea along the seacoast, Herod built that place. Now the boats from Italy could come there. The boats from Alexandria could come up. And it would take four days off of their voyage. And everything could be traded right there in his harbor. Herod made tremendous money. He twice paid the taxes for Israel to, to Rome for his money, from his own pocket money. We'll see the difference of Herod and Jesus as we go on. We'll continue maybe to bring Herod in once in a while. But that's the way of the sea. Israel is about 150 to 200 miles long. It's about 50 miles, maybe 60 miles at the widest wide from east to west. So you got a New Jersey state is all you have in Israel. And two-thirds of it is mountains. The other third is low-lying that they can do regular farming. Now they're, they're finding ways. The desert is also coming alive further south from the Dead Sea. When you travel down through there, they have date palm trees by the millions down there. And they found a way to drip with a drip irrigation system, it takes very little water to sustain them. And they, they raise figs by the tons out of there. Figs and, yeah, figs, tremendous food. Here is just an outline now in Jesus' time. We're in Jesus' time now. So we had the three sons of Herod. Herod the Great was, had died. So now you have his three sons. Herod Archelaus, down here in Judea, and part of Samaria. And you had Herod Antipas was Galilee and Perea, which was the other side where was one of Herod the Great's fortresses. But then you had Herod Philip, which ruled in Caesarea Philippi and on the east side of the Sea of Galilee and a lot of Syria that Herod Philip was in. We won't spend a lot of time there, but those three are in the time of Jesus. Jesus was confronted with Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas had his headquarters here on the Sea of Galilee at Tiberias, right on the west side, on the southern part of Tiberias, which is still there. That's where Herod Antipas was. Jesus was up here, around the corner there, at Capernaum. 
and we'll see some of that. Again, I showed you that the other day just to give you another topography. And here again, the outline of Israel, how it laid from, west, from the west side to the east, the four or five parts that you have there, coastal plain, Shephelah, Judean mountains, wilderness, and the Great Rift Valley, the Jordan Valley. And so that's the, the, the outlay of, of the country there. Let me just move from the... Oh, let me talk about the Decapolis just a little bit. That's where the ten pagan cities were. That's where Alexander was building his, his kingdom and it was moving into the Israelite and the Israel trying to get the Israeli people or the Jewish people to succumb to what he wants. And, and we'll hopefully get to talk a little bit about that. It was unbelievable what happened and how that changed the world. Also, the seven pagan cities were over here that God had told Joshua to drive out. And so those were on the west side. And over here is where the 12 tribes of Israel were, while the 10 and a half tribes were over here. And some of the tribe, there was one tribe, there was the tribe of uh, Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh were on this side, and over here were the rest. Again, gives you a picture of around the Galilee. I'll just, uh, should have taken this one out. Sorry about that. Quickly go through here. These are just the 12 tribes, the allotments of the 12 tribes of Israel. And if, and if somebody here wants this PowerPoint presentation, I can download it on a flash drive for you, whatever you want. And for you, to, if you want to study and use it for teaching, I'm willing to share all of my uh, PowerPoints if you want them. Quickly here. And Naphtali. So those were the tribes that were, how it was broken down. And, and we could talk about uh, the, uh, the ancient landmarks and how important that was to those people. When, when there was a certain area that stays with the tribe, it wouldn't go outside of the tribe. For thousands of years, it was like that. And it's that with the Arabs as well. They're very uh, adamant about keeping, keeping their, uh, their allotments where they, where they are to be. It's going to be hard for you to see this, but as you look at this map, you can come up and look at it if you want to, but it'll give you the terrain of Israel. And here's where the southern part is called Negev part, which is the barren and the dry, the means south and dry. As you come up through, you've got a lower mountain here, which they get some rainfall here. They can do some wheat in this area, and they can grow some of that. But as you come up north, you can see you get a lot more rainfall. And now you have the ridge route. You had two roads going through here in, in the time of the kings. I'll just point them out. It's called the ridge route, which came up through Hebron. Hebron is a very strategic point, very important point. Then Jerusalem, and on up through, and we'll, we'll, it comes up to Shiloh. And we know Shiloh was an important place. Shiloh is where they kept the Ark of the Covenant, and on up through there. Of course, then you had the route that came along here, which is the main route, came across and over through and up through and all the way over into Syria, what is Damascus now. But this will give you just the elevation of how, it, how it's really laid out. Interesting if you love geography. As we look at the life of Jesus and geography, here we're looking into Jerusalem. We'll just move on here and get into the discipleship a little bit. Then we'll need to close and then finish tonight. Oops, excuse me. Let me go back here. Sorry about that. Okay, let's look at the discipleship of Jesus. Before I go there, though, but let me talk again. or just, just encourage you with geography. Some of you don't like geography. Well, most people don't like geography a lot. 
Geography is really important. If you ever get to go to Israel, you will find out why geography is so important. Because when you walk in Israel, it's like one of our rabbis, one of, one of our scholars said, the land will chew you up and spit you out. It is that rugged. And it is a hard land. And when you, when you sit there, you'll sit on a mountain looking, and you think of Jesus, you think of the children of Israel, you think of everything that's happened in Israel, and you wonder, how did they survive? Everything is up and down until you get to the Shephelah. And it is rugged stuff. Yes, it grows. There's rocks. I never saw a country with that many rocks. They're all over the place. You have to clear the rocks before you can even plant oftentimes. It's still there. But they're thriving and they're surviving. And they did all through the history. But it is amazing. And it changes how you understand the Bible when you go there. Because you never think it's so rugged. It is rugged. Even in Jerusalem, when you walk Jerusalem, you're never, it's, yeah, they've, when you go out Jaffa Street, it's not bad, but you, you, it's never flat. It's always up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down all the time. So learn the geography of Israel. It'll give you an in, insight in the scripture that you never had before. Okay, let's just start in here, then we'll, we'll stop. If you say that you abide in me, you must walk as Jesus walked, 1 John 2, 6. Let's remember that. We're talking about Jesus. So if we say that we abide in him, we must walk as he walked. So Jesus walking along the seashore, and he called his fishermen. Why would he call fishermen? What was so important about that? Why do we need to know that he called fishermen? And straightway they left their nets and followed him. Amazing. No questions asked. It doesn't say that they, they had the dialogue with dad yet and get his permission to go. They said they just left. How is that? How can that be? How would that work in our day? Behold, I will send many fishers, says the Lord, and behold, they shall fish them. In Jeremiah 16, that's why he called fishers. He prophesied that he would call fishers to be fishers of men. Discipleship. What is a disciple? Talmud. A Talmud is a disciple. Disciple. Talmudim is disciples. It's plural. Synagogue is where they would learn. And then the Jewish school, they would go there as well. Let me just quickly go past this one. Uh, to save time, and we'll come back to that later. This is the different schools they had. It's called the Beth Sefer is the first one. And then what does God taste like? The rabbi would, the first day of school, the rabbi would take a piece of wax paper, and he'd lay it at every desk. And then he'd take a honey bear, and he would take it and put a drip of honey or a drop of honey on that wax paper. And then, and they would all have a little scroll, a scroll with a shema on it. And then he would go back, and he'd say, tell these children, now take this honey and lick that honey. Again, it's a picture. And when you lick the honey, remember this is how God tastes like. Sweeter than honey, than the honeycomb. And they never forget it. They will come home at night, that evening, and they'll say, Mama, Papa, guess what the rabbi did today? He showed us how God tastes like. It's a picture they will never forget. And that's what goes on in their schools. So it's the elementary. They start at the age of five. That's where you learn to read, learn the scripture. And it's boys and girls from five to 12. By the age 12, they'll change to junior high, what we call junior high. Now, this is how they do math from 5 to 12. They'll do math this way. One God, two tablets, three patriarchs, four mothers, five books, six pagan nations, seven days of the week, eight new beginning, nine beatitudes, ten spies, 12 tribes, and so on. Imagine we do school like that with the Bible. God plus tablets equals patriarchs. 
or tribes minus Beatitudes equals patriarchs, or spies minus beginning, new beginning equals tablets. And that's how they do math. Up to 50 they have that. Now you can start multiplying as well. You don't use the numbers, you use the words. And they just make a much greater impact. And it, and it gives you, so the second one is Beth Talmud. Now we got the upper school. And we're going to be starting to learn more. It's a place of explaining. They have now memorized the Torah, the first five books of Moses, to the age of 12. That's when they have Bar Mitzvah. They'll be initiating their sons and daughters into manhood at the age of 12 and 13. I think we should think about that. A lot of people are actually doing that, and I think it's a really good practice. Look into it. When your children become adults, they're adults, and let's raise them like adults. Like one person said one time, we're raising children instead of adults. Let's raise adults. And that's initiating them into adulthood, giving them the responsibility. Because at the age of 12, they tell me in the Jewish world, the son could run his father's business. Now, his business wasn't maybe like, quite like ours, but I'm telling you, we, we, have, we have been watered down in, in raising children to let them be like an eaglet. And yeah, they need direction, but anyway. And that's when most of the boys and girls get married from the Talmud, which is between 15. Actually, some of them, by 13, they can get married already. They still do in the, in the Arab world, 13 to, to 19. But most girls were married at like 16 years of age. And the boys wouldn't as quick, but the girls would, if you look at history. And they learned the Tanakh here. Now they have learned the Torah up to 12. Now they're learning the Tanakh, which means the whole Bible, the rest of it. They have to know, if you want to follow a rabbi in that world, you go up to the rabbi and say, we know that you have had your great rabbi, you're well-respected here, and on and on you go about him, and, and the, what you're saying is to this rabbi, I'd like to be like you. So the rabbi will start asking you questions, and he'll ask you the question is, well, which bird is mentioned first in the Bible? And second graders know that, by the way. Second graders will know all the birds in the Bible that are mentioned in the first five books of Moses. They will know that. Every hand will go up. And, and so for, for a disciple, that's first grade, first grade stuff, or second grade stuff. And then he will keep asking them questions to see how much you know in the scripture. And if you qualify for his credentials, he will accept you. That's a normal way. Jesus did it a different way, but that's the normal way. And they learn it's important for those children to learn a family trade. You still find it in the Jewish world today. That's a strong, strong practice to learn that. Then it's Bed Midrash. Only one in 10,000 make it here because this is where the elite go. Now, I don't know if that figure is exactly right or not, but you have to be able to decipher everything that rabbi says if you want to be in his school. It's Yale, Harvard, Princeton type school. And you need to be a, like a sieve. You only collect what's good and you let the rest go. You're not a sponge. You're not a funnel. You're like a sieve. That's who the rabbis want. Jesus did it all different. It didn't matter to Jesus. Jesus called them and they obeyed. And it's 15 years in school, 15 years in rabbi school. To become a rabbi takes about 15 years. Still does today. It is intense stuff. And you have to know it by heart. There was, I think it was David Flusser that knew the Old Testament in seven languages by heart. Seven languages by heart. He could say it was amazing. The man was a walking Bible. And I'm not sure if he became a believer or not. He had many, many wrestlings together with the Christians over there. And I had one quote that said that when he left for the last time, this house of this one pastor, he said, I believe. But they don't know if he became a believer in Jesus truly or not. 
but he taught Jesus brilliantly as a prophet, but not as the Messiah. But yeah, that's, that's to become a Talmudim. Imagine, imagine the intensity. And so Jesus comes along the way, and maybe these disciples that were out on the boat had been rejected from Talmudim, as a Talmudim from a, from a rabbi. They just didn't have enough credentials to make it. And Jesus comes and says, you don't need credentials. You need to have feet that are willing to walk. So becoming a disciple, you need a rabbi. There were two kinds of rabbis. We'll go on with that. We'll, we'll mix that in as we go. And we'll, let me go, let me put this up for you to look at. You need to be covered by the dust of the rabbi, brothers and sisters. And the rabbi is, the disciple is consumed with everything. So when Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, imagine, just imagine. They were under the ruthless oppression of Romans. And Jesus comes along and says, nah, not my yoke, it's different. So to take a yoke on is mean you take on his teachings. And you take it on with tenacity. Let me, I'll talk more about disciples and rabbis when we come back this evening. But think about these things. It is an exciting journey as you see Jesus walking with those disciples for three, week, for three intense years. What will happen? We're here today because of them. Hallelujah.